0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Genesis chapter 19. Over the past couple of weeks now, we've been talking about the visitation of these three individuals, uh, first to Abraham and now to Lot. Uh, we talked over the past couple of weeks about the visitation to Abraham, um, and ultimately we came out of that Uh, that text in Genesis 18, seeing that um, nothing is impossible for God. And then also nothing is unjust by God, Uh, that not only is nothing too hard for God to do, everything that God does is right and with purpose, including his judgment upon the wicked. And so we saw last week that God includes Abraham in his plans for Sodom. He reveals his plans for Sodom to Abraham. Uh, God wants to have Abraham understand his justice. And so they have a conversation so that Abraham can arrive at the fact that God only does right things. But he also wants to give Abraham a tool, um, a a teaching tool to pass on to his generation so that the sins of Sodom can be avoided. Um, and then Abraham gets a question answered himself. Does God sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Um, and what God is very clear in is is that he is willing to spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. And he offers to spare the cities if only ten people can be found righteous. Um, and we're going to see that even though he can't find ten, he is still willing to spare the righteous so that they are not judged alongside the wicked. This is a, uh, a difficult passage for me. Um, and we, and we reference this, and I, we'll go ahead and uh, turn there and read it briefly and come back to it. But in 2 Peter chapter 2 this chapter wouldn't be difficult for me except for the fact of second peter chapter 2 verse 6 if by turning the cities of sodom and gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly verse 7 and if he rescued righteous lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So Peter leans upon this story and uses Lot as an example of a righteous individual that God spares. And uh, what's difficult maybe to reconcile is the fact that God refers to him as righteous. And so in my studies this week, I was uh, looking up different perspectives on why Lot is counted righteous, why Lot is considered righteous, and there were different individuals that, that built different cases and different reasonings. Um, but what I, what I really stepped back and, and discovered and really allowed the Holy Spirit to, to reveal to me in my own studies here. Uh, is the summary sentence for today. And so I want to post that on our TV for us. The story of Lot is an attack on any remaining beliefs inside of us that good works by us earn a righteous standing with God. The story of Lot is an attack on any remaining beliefs inside of us that good works by us earn a righteous standing with God. Because here's, here's what we're prone to do. We're prone to read this in Second Peter and say, Lot's a righteous man. Let me go back and find his righteousness. Let me go back and see if I can discover what makes him a righteous man. And what we've, what we've failed to realize is that we've reverted back to a law system of salvation. Let me go find where, where Lot was obedient and why God should let him into his presence for eternity. And it's completely contrary to the gospel. Now I don't think any of us would claim that good works get us to heaven like none of us would would vocalize that probably that we have to to be good to be saved that that our righteous standing before God is based on our works right We would all say that that Christ earns perfection for us, but when it comes to the story of lot, we're very quick to revert back to a a wrong way of thinking um it, it's similar to some of those crime scenes where it looks like the the individual has cleaned up the mess, and then you come in with some heavy duty lights and and tools, and you find there's a lot of evidence still left. Or even worse, some of those articles that talk about how dirty your bathroom is, and how when you flush your toilet things spray around where your to- to- uh, toothbrush is, and you see you're like, oh, it's gross. Like it looks clean, but it's not clean. That that's kind of like what this is. We think we've come to a good, deep understanding of how the gospel works and it's based on Jesus, not based on us. And then we come to the story of Lot and we realize that there's still some some things in our heart that need to be cleaned up when it comes to understanding the gospel because we're very quick to want to start trying to list how could we ever count this guy righteous? How could we ever count him righteous based on the things that he did? And it's the essence of the gospel that he can't be counted righteous, and nor can any of us be counted righteous based on our good deeds. In fact, scripture is very clear that Abraham is not counted righteous because of anything that he did, but instead by believing what God was going to do. And so I want us to see this story. I want us to see the details of this story. I want to see what Peter's talking about in 2 Peter in light of this fact, that Lot is counted righteous And he's counted righteous the same way Abraham's counted righteous. And he's counted righteous the same way we're counted righteous. Not by his good works. Not by his good deeds. Alright, so we step into Genesis chapter 19. um, And we see that there's a lot of parallels to chapter 18. These visitors show up and uh, Lot greets them, much like Abraham greets them. Uh, And the story seemingly plays out very similar uh, with obviously far different results as far as the, the visit by these visitors. Uh, first of all, we'll see how Lot shows hospitality in this passage. It says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. There's a progression that we've seen in the book of Genesis with Lot. We saw initially that he moved his his family and his tents as far as Sodom. In uh, Genesis 13, 12, he, he got as close as he could. Um, he, he wanted to live there because the land was good. We then saw in 14 when Sodom is attacked and Abraham has to go rescue Lot and his family and the rest of the Sodomites, that he's actually living in Sodom, that he's dwelling there, that he's moved from the outskirts of the city into the city. And then what we find here in 19 is that he is sitting in the gate of Sodom. He's sitting in the gate of Sodom. And this is a focal point of cities during that time. It's where, um, where the market was, where uh, a lot of matters of justice would have been settled. Um, and it's most likely, most theologians would say, that he is holding some type of leadership position here in Sodom. That he's moved from being someone living on the outskirts to living in Sodom, and now he has progressed to the point where he is one of them and has been elected to a position of authority. And he is he is practicing or exercising some type of authority within the city when these two angels show up. And, I, and Lot, very similar to Abraham, demonstrates hospitality, and he does it in several different ways. Um, he offers his home to them, much like Abraham, come and, uh, and, and stay with me. They are hesitant to do so. It says, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. Lot offers his home to him. It's a permanent residency in Sodom now. Remember, Abraham invited them into his tents, a temporary dwelling place. Lot has, has set up a permanent residence here in Sodom. He insists on them coming with him. He understood, as we'll see the passage play out, he understood the wickedness that these people were capable of. He understood what would happen if these individuals did not stay with him. He was aware of the sinful depths of Sodom. He also prepares a quick meal. This is in contrast to Abraham hurrying to make a meal. You'll remember the, the passage in 18 reflects on how he hurried about, but he spent a lot of time developing a great meal for these guests. Lot creates a hurried meal. He 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 gives them matzah. Or he gives them uh, unleavened bread, something that would have been very quick, very easy to make, because his intent is to get them in and to get them out as quickly as possible. He's not interested in keeping them there. He doesn't want them to tarry there or to linger there. Why? Because he knows the wickedness of Sodom. He knows what's in store for these individuals if they stay too long. So. Come over to my house, let's eat quickly, let's get to bed so that you get plenty of rest so that we can actually wake up early and get you out of here before anybody notices that you're here. Lot shows hospitality, it's not quite the same as Abraham, partly due to the circumstances of where he's living, but he definitely reaches out and demonstrates hospitality. In contrast to that, we see how Sodom shows hospitality. They too recognize that visitors are among them and their wickedness is on full display. We've already highlighted the fact that nothing is hidden about the gross wickedness of Sodom. that They're not trying to hide it. I mean, it's very vocal. The people come together and demand these visitors be given to them. It says in verse four, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man. So emphasizing the fact that this wickedness extends to every corner of the city. They surrounded the house and they called to lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. There's a similar story in Judges chapter 19. I don't know how many of you would be familiar with that story. But there's a similar story in Judges chapter 19 where a man comes into a city with his concubine that he went to rescue. And the situation's real similar, where he is in the the middle of the city. This guy says, you can't stay here. Come into my house, because if you stay here, it'll be bad for you. That house gets surrounded by individuals, and they actually force the concubine outside instead of the man being given to this group of of madmen. And they abuse her, and they kill her. Um, And so it's a real tragic account and real similar to this account. If you wanted to go back and read that and see how that played out, it's in Judges chapter uh, 19. But what we have here in this passage is that nothing is hidden about the gross wickedness of these people. It's on full display. Um, It's on full display here for the visitors to see. Remember, and that's why God has sent these angels here. Not because he doesn't know about the sin, but he wants to communicate to Abraham that he's very intentional to investigate these cries against the city and so it's on full display for these two angels they get to see the depth of wickedness here um, in in several different ways first of all the men of sodom desire to be served right instead of what we think of in terms of hospitality let me serve you and that's what abraham did remember he demonstrated humility he brought the people in Um, We see him actually doing what maybe his servants would have normally done. He's cooking everything. He's preparing everything. He's there ready and, and willing and able to do whatever these guys need to be taken care of. Lot does something very similar. He demonstrates a lot of the same character traits as Abraham here with his hospitality. Again, he's motivated about wanting to get them in and out because of the danger that they're in, not so much that he doesn't want them in his house. The men of Sodom, though, stand in stark contrast. They have no desire to serve. Obviously, they desire to have their own wants and desires served. They want to use these visitors for their own plans. Um, We don't have to look too in depth here to to speculate what they're wanting to do. Um, It says they call to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lest we want to argue that they are simply wanting to get to know these people, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. All right, we know the phrase here in, in the Hebrew language oftentimes is tied to sexual intercourse, and that's exactly what's intended here. This is a homosexual desire by these people in this city. They want these individuals for their desires. All right, um, it's not just a sin of homosexuality here, though. There's a violent intent here as well. There's a violent intent. This isn't, this, isn't, um, this isn't something that these visitors would cooperate in. This is a, you give them to us so that we can do whatever we want to with these individuals. There's a, there's a depth of sin here that has to be dealt with by God. Um, not only is it perversion, But there's violence that's attached to their desires as well. The men of Sodom desire to be served. But secondly, the men of Sodom ridicule Lot's position. In in the midst of this discussion, uh, Lot wants to deter them from any judgment that would come from this. He says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Verse eight, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you. And do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. All right, so they're, they're disinterested in Lot's position of authority. And they even criticize him as being a, a moral judge all of a sudden here, wanting to rebuke them for their wicked intent. Um, And they want nothing of it. In fact, they want to uh, respond in an even worse way towards Lot. And so they ridicule his position. Um, Perhaps he's in this position because of what Abraham had done for the city. You'll remember Abraham rescued the Sodomites. And it may be that Lot was granted special position of authority, even though he was a sojourner, even though he wasn't really born in Sodom. He may have been given some privileges because of what Abraham had done to rescue that city. Uh, But these people uh, revolt against him here. They want nothing to do with the things that he's trying to say to them. The men of Sodom threatened to do even worse to Lot. This indicates to us that they had wicked plans for their visitors, right? The the, the men say, yeah, we have bad intentions for these visitors, but if you don't give them to us, we're going to do far worse to you than we intend to do to them. So there's even a, a, a an inkling of understanding that what we want to do isn't right to these visitors. They threaten to do even worse to Lot. And number four, the men of Sodom pressed hard for what they wanted. They pressed hard for what they wanted. This is the same word used for how Lot pushed for the visitors to join him at home. You'll remember... They said, no, we'll stay in the city. We'll, um, we don't want to trouble you and stay at your place. Uh, he said in verse 3, but he pressed them strongly. We're going to see that this is kind of a running theme in this passage. People really being urged and forced to do things that they weren't going to do on their own. So Lot says, no, 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 you have to stay at my house. And then these people are pressing hard. No, 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 Lot, we're not going to take no for an answer here. You will give us these individuals. You will provide them to us, or we're going to do worse to you. They pressed hard for it. Um, I think I think it's important to note that Lot's offering of his daughters is, is motivated out of a desire to save his visitors. And we're going to come back to this. It's obviously uh, horrific that he would resort to this type of thinking, that here here's the alternative i think it's motivated out of uh in his mind a lesser of the two evils if, if he's got supernatural visitors here and at some point he's going to pick up on this if he hasn't already special people that have come to to be with him if it's one or the other he's going to sacrifice flesh and blood to preserve the visitors that are in his house all right it's it's obviously wrong it's obviously not right but it it, it probably exonerates him a little bit. If we put ourselves in his shoes, in his mind, he's thinking there's, there's one of two choices here. If I don't do something, they're going to they're gonna break my house down. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking on the, on the fly here, trying to come up with something to get these guys to leave these visitors alone. Sodom obviously uh, is not showing the type of hospitality that Lot showed and uh, wanting to be served rather than to serve. These individuals. And so that brings us to our third point how God demonstrates salvation by grace in this story. God doesn't have to stay long to know that Sodom is obviously deserving of the punishment that's coming. Verse 9, but they said, stand back. And then in verse 10, uh, the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door and they struck with blindness. The men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Verse 12, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. The angels give Lot opportunity to gather his family here. This is by God's grace that he even extends this. Um, we don't know how many, for sure, lots, uh, how many people make up Lot's family. Um, it may be that the reason the, the angels suggest sons-in-laws and sons and daughters is because he has those family members. Remember, we talked about the fact that it's possible that there was enough in his family to make up the ten Righteous. Um what we know is that only two daughters and his wife leave with him. But there may have been others that, that Lot is not able to rescue. He goes to his sons-in-law's, it says, um in verse 14. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. So his family members think he's joking which is a testimony to the fact that his witness has been ineffective. Um, he has not done a great job of leading his family to trust in the same guy that he trusts in, right? Because when God communicates, the only response there is laughing. You, you've got to be joking, like, this, this, this isn't going to happen. This isn't capable of happening. You're, you're talking out of your mind, basically, is how his family members respond but God graciously extends the opportunity to gather his family. Secondly, the angels press Lot to leave when he lingers. So the third account here of individuals being kind of pushed and forced to do something that they weren't doing on their own. Lot starts to linger here. He has the message of judgment, but it says in verse 15, As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So what we even see here in Lot is while he's hospitable and while he's spiritually sensitive to things going on around him, even in the midst of judgment, even in the midst of knowing that God is coming to bring wrath upon this city, he lingers and he's dragging his feet. It's an indication to us that, that his roots are deep in his city, that that he loves his city, he loves his life, he loves the the community and the culture that he has built here over the past two decades. Uh, and he, and he's not quick to leave it. And, and the angels are really having to, to push and, and force him to get out of town and it's by God's grace that they don't just walk out and say okay if you're going to take your time you're just going to get left right sometimes we threaten that to people that are dragging their feet and and not as in a hurry as we are if you don't hurry up you're going to get left right God's gracious here he could have easily said look if you're not that interested in leaving then I'm not that interested in saving But instead, he's very active and very proactive to get Lot and his family out of the city. It's by God's grace. And then we see more of God's grace in that he grants Lot's request to flee to Zoar. Verse 17, as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my Lord's. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. It is not a, Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. It, it almost sounds like AJ's talking here. Honestly, like he he basically says, "Can I go to this other city? It, it's just a little one." It's a little city with a little bit of sin in it. I know you're going to punish these cities. I know they deserve it. I know it's wicked. But instead of me going to the mountains, can I just have a little one? Can I just have a little city with a little bit of sin in it? Think about the the contrast to Abraham's appeal to God to spare cities, right? He appeals to God's justice and says, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Here, Lot is not arguing for the righteous people in Zoar that may exist there. He's saying, put me there because their sin is just a little. Let's spare that city so I still have a place to live. Just give me a little one. Give me a little city with a little bit of sin. Let me flee there. And God is very gracious in granting him this request. Not as much gracious to Lot, but gracious to that city. Gracious to that city on behalf of the righteous. Remember, God says, I will spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous if I can find ten. Here he's going to spare the city because of Lot and Lot being present in that city. It says, uh, verse 21, he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you, till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. It's interesting that he doesn't even think about returning to Abraham. I don't know if he's embarrassed. I don't know if, um, if it's too far for him, if, think it's not, if he thinks it's not an option. But it's interesting that he doesn't resort to thinking, let's go back to where we came from. In verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back. And she became a pillar of salt. Lot's wife serves as an example to Christians today. Jesus uses her as an example in Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, Jesus draws upon this account in verse 31. He says, on that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Talking about the return of Jesus, the son of man coming. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. She lost her life because she failed to let go of her stuff. One commentator said, if people crave the best of this world along with the world to come, they may receive neither. If people crave the best of this world, along with the world to come, they may receive neither. The individual that wants to live for this life and the one to come. She turns back because there's a longing for it not to be destroyed. There's a longing for life to continue as it was continuing. She wants to go back, whether it's possessional material stuff, whether it's relationships, whatever it is. There's a draw and a desire to go back. In excavations of of volcanic sites it's not uncommon to find individuals clinging to their stuff when they've been overcome by the volcanic eruptions things that caused them to linger the desire to bring stuff with them ultimately cost them Um, and what we have here is a sample of, of Lot's wife and the things that she was having to give up give up eventually costing her her life um, I've been told through reading that if you were to go to this area of the Dead Sea where it's speculated that Sodom and Gomorrah were close to, that there are still salt structures um, that exist today that resemble uh, human figures. Um, in fact, in Jesus' time, Josephus, who was a historian, actually claimed to have seen Lot's wife at that time, that her salt structure was still in existence. We don't have any proof of that Um we're not even really told what happens for this destruction. Um, speculation that there was an earthquake or some type of volcanic eruption or or, or simply God just bringing this type of judgment upon the city uh, supernaturally without any natural occurrence. We're not sure how it happens. Uh, we know that Lot's wife perishes with the rest of the city uh, because she doesn't really truly give up the city when she leaves. But God demonstrates salvation by grace all through this account Opportunities for the family to come, um, pressing Lot to leave when he's trying to linger, and then even showing him grace and allowing him to flee to this city, which ultimately would have been an easier flight for, for, for Lot, rather than having to flee to the hill country, something that was, that was quicker and easier upon him physically. But God also demonstrates judgment by justice in this account as well. However he does it, the act of judgment finds its origin in God. It's not simply a natural disaster only. So even if this was an earthquake or a volcano or, or, or something like that, this is not a natural thing without God behind it. God is the source. He's the origin of this situation. God brings judgment upon this city for their sin. We've talked about this, the sins of Sodom. There was social oppression. Isaiah 1 talks about it. There was adultery. There was lying. There was the, uh, the abetting of criminals. Uh, In Jeremiah chapter 23, there was arrogance, complacency, and a lack of pity on the needy in Ezekiel 16. Jude chapter 7, or Jude verse 7, sorry, Jude verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example. By undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is this is a corrupt city. This is this is not a good city. For those of you that like watching superhero movies, this is this is Gotham City. This, this, is, this is overrun by crime and disgust. The, the, the law is corrupt. The people are corrupt. There's nothing good about this city. Uh, they're, they're encouraging criminals. They're encouraging the breaking of the law. There's perversion here that has to be dealt with. This city deserves God's justice. The Old Testament law, if you go through and read the Old Testament law, you may wonder, why does God have to say that these things are wrong? Especially when you get to the list of, of uh, sexual teaching and like what is and isn't permissible. You may read through that, especially when, I remember reading through it as a middle schooler and a high schooler and thinking, why? Why? Like, Why do I have to be told that I should not do this? I would not do this. It was written because they were about to go in an environment where it was happening, where this type of perversion in the promised land with the Canaanites was happening. And they had to be told that this was not okay and this wasn't okay and this should not be done and this should never be done because they were going to come around people that were engaging in that type of activity. And Sodom and Gomorrah fall under that umbrella. There was perversion, unnatural attraction, unnatural activity. That brings about God's punishment. We see a lot about God here. in in how he brings about his judgment. God demonstrates justice. In his judgment. um, In back in Genesis. uh, Genesis chapter 19. When he brings about the punishment. Verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning. To the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. See, I think Abraham walks out there and he remembers that conversation and he sees the smoke rising and he says. Not even 10. There weren't 10 righteous there. And I think Abraham, rather than raising his fist at God and questioning, how could you do this? How could this be right? I think he looks out and says was absolutely right there's not even 10 righteous people in that city Um, god is very just in his judgment and he's communicating that through that conversation with abraham and then how this plays out um secondly god does not punish the righteous along with the wicked right he does spare the righteous it's just not enough to spare the whole city but he gets lot uh and his family out and it's debatable as to whether the rest of lots family is even considered righteous his wife dies his two daughters, we, we only know of what they, what they do in the cave. They're, they're not counted righteous according to Scripture. So it may have been only one righteous in all of the city. Uh, God does not punish the righteous along with the wicked, though. 1929 says, uh, back in Genesis 19, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. And he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God spares the wicked for the sake of the righteous. He spared that city that Lot ends up fleeing to. And he was willing to spare more had there been more righteous. Number four, God does not bring judgment without careful investigation, as we've already talked about. He thoroughly investigated that situation. Number five, God avenges the oppressed by punishing the oppressors. Remember, we said that the cries of Sodom's wickedness had reached God. And we said that this wasn't necessarily there had to be people that weren't okay with what was going on in Sodom. And most likely, it's people that had visited Sodom. These visitors that come to see Lot are not the only people that have ever visited the city. Because Lot knows this is what happens to visitors of our city. They're going to be attacked, and there's going to be violent treatment towards them. So it's very likely that people had visited the city and maybe had been permitted to leave the city, but are crying out to the injustice and the oppression that they experienced in that city. And what's comforting to us is that God hears the oppressed, and he deals with the oppressors here. He says, I will not tolerate the oppression that's happening in this city. People that demand to be served rather than serving themselves, rather than serving others. He says, there's wickedness that's happening here. There's oppression, and I will deal with the oppressors. Number six, God gives opportunities for repentance and salvation. So even in the midst of judgment, God extends the opportunity for repentance and salvation. Even to those that were born in Sodom, these men that are going to marry Lot's daughters, are permitted to be saved if they'll only believe. Number seven, God brings thorough judgment when he decides to execute. Thorough judgment happens here. It says that he rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. I mean, this is devastation of flood proportions here. I mean, this is a, a complete wiping away of everything that's living in that area. It's a It's an isolated event. He doesn't do this to the whole earth, but he does do it thoroughly to this area. And then number eight, God allows the righteous to reap what they sow. All right. So it's not just that Lot is doing all this, all this stuff that we're going to talk about him doing. And then he just gets off scot free. Right. God allows the righteous to reap what they sow. Lot is allowed to rescue his family lots allowed to take his family out of sodom but he can't take sodom out of his family right he chose to live there he chose to raise his family there and even when he relocates them it's too late his wife can't let go looks back and she perishes he and his daughters flee Zoar. It says that they're not comfortable staying there. Why? Because he probably looks around and says, even a little bit of sin is probably going to bring God's judgment. So however long they stay there, he eventually says, this place isn't going to be safe real long either. And so they leave and they flee up into the mountains. And what we find there is is gross reasoning by his daughters that the only way we can bear children is to do so through our father. It says that, Um, Lot went up out of Zoar, lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on the earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. I have no idea why they still have wine. Right. Like all their stuff has perished. Somehow, when they gathered up the things that were important, this was important to them, right? They make it up into the, to the hill country, and we've got our wine, and we've got each other, and, and basically, let's drown our sorrows up here. Um, and the daughters concoct this plan. I think they're probably feeling some of the same things that Sarah was feeling, even though they're far younger than Sarah. Their identity is tied to their children, and they don't have any, and they don't have husbands. They were about to get married, and now they're, they're not going to get married. And the Bible says they haven't known a man, and so they've been waiting for this opportunity. And and now they're not sure how far this devastation extends. And if they're fearful that Zoar, who are the only people that they they know for sure are still alive, may perish as well, their reasoning is we're going to have to continue the human race somehow. We've got to contribute here. We've got to do something or else we're all going to perish. And so... uh, Similar to, to Noah and his family coming off the ark and being the only people, they maybe perceive themselves as the only people left as well, and so they concoct this plan to get pregnant from their father. Um, they realize that he's not going to agree to it, and so they have to, uh, they have to get him drunk in, into a state where um, he's participating but not really aware of what's going on. This happens on back to back nights, and both children, uh, both daughters, are impregnated by him. Uh, this is a tragedy. Uh, this is, uh, again, him reaping what he has sown, um, and, and the, the two that are born here, Moab uh, and then uh, Ben-Ami, these, these two produce uh, nations that will wreak havoc for the children of Israel moving forward. It's the Moabites that Balaam is interacting with that want to curse Israel and that want to bring down Israel and end up leading the men, remember, away from God to come worship their God and seduce them. And it brings judgment upon Israel. And God allows this to play out that way. And he allows Lot to reap what he's sown personally. He loses his wife and, and loses his daughters, loses them from a spiritual standpoint, it seems. And then their consequences continue to to spiral down and down, and and Abraham's descendants end up having to to bear some of these consequences. But there's also a lot of God's grace in this because Ruth is a Moabite. Ruth comes from this this group of people, David comes from this group of people, Christ comes from this group of people. So even in the midst of of sin and rebellion, God's grace and that, that thread of grace continues to run through Scripture tragedy in the cave, but God turns it for good. God turns it for good and allows the Messiah to come from both Abraham's descendants and Lot's descendants that both work together and Christ comes to this earth. It's kind of the narrative and how the narrative plays out, but let's step back and and look at it from a gospel perspective now. Why are we quick to judge Lot. What are some of the things that you came up with in your groups that we say, this, this is hard for me to count that man righteous because of this. What are, what are some of those things that we would hold against Lot? What would we come up with in our discussions? Okay, offering his daughters. Uh, offering his daughters to, to essentially be, be taken advantage of violently. Um, potentially not to get them back, like, like I said. When you read that account in Judges, he doesn't get his concubine back; she, she's completely ravished by these individuals and not given back to him. So, so he's willing to sacrifice his daughters. What, what else do we hold against Lot? Okay, it's, it seems it seems to be a lot of weakness in his leadership um, and, and weakness to really step up and be the man that he needs to be all the way down to, to not really wanting to go to the hill country, wanting to find an alternate route that would be easier. What else? Things that we would hold against Lot. Why, why it's hard to read 2 Peter and, and say yes, what a righteous man Lot was. Okay? We're not clearly told when he puts faith. And, and I will say that I believe strongly that it's not after this. It's not that Lot gets saved after the cave incident. He's counted righteous before this. Okay? He's not ca- it's not that we need to conjure up, oh, there was a come to Jesus meeting that happened after this, and we- and he's buried at the altar, and he gets saved. And um, I don't believe that's what happens. I believe he's righteous in the cave. And, I- and I'll explain to you why, but um, other, re- other things that we hold against Lot. All right, he lives in a wicked city, lives in a wicked city, doesn't have a lot of influence. Um, right, yep, he's, he's a dimly lit star in the wickedness. Some of the things that I jotted down, uh, he chose to live in a wicked city, he offered up his daughters, he gets drunk and gets his daughters pregnant. While the text says that he wasn't fully aware of what was going on, you know when he was fully aware, when he started to drink and to drink and to drink and to drink and, and allowed himself to be opened up to this type of behavior, which is why Scripture warns against drunkenness, right? Um, doesn't prohibit drinking, doesn't demand that we're not allowed to partake, but, but offers a lot of serious caution about knowing when one is to stop because it opens up us to behaviors that I believe Lot is accountable for because he made the choice to put himself in that type of position. Um, but this is real similar to what we see with Noah and his son, Ham. Remember, Noah gets drunk, and then we're not told really anything, except that something happened in that tent that wasn't okay. Um, but it was tied to Noah getting drunk. Number four, he was ineffective in his witness, right? He lives in a wicked city and, and doesn't do a whole lot to change that wicked city. Um. You, you, would, you would step back and say, surely there's 10 people righteous. I mean, he's been living there for a couple of decades. Surely there's 10 people that he's influenced. Um, it's also interesting that he's not that much different than the people that just got burned up in Sodom, right? They were burned up for perversion, sexual perversion, that just now happens again in the cave, right? Like Sodom's being reborn in the cave. We just dealt with perversion, and now the people that I've saved are involved in perversion as well. I want you to see something, though, and I, and I think it's important because I think perspectives are everything in this in this case. But if we go back to second Peter. Verse two or chapter two, verse six, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds, what he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He's called righteous three times in this passage. Like it's not a, a, an error. It's not that the, the that Peter gets carried away in his writing. It's not even if someone's transcribing it for Peter that he slips this word in there. It's three times. It's very intentional that God wants us to see Lot as being counted Righteous. It's not an accident. And yet, why do we have such a hard time with it? Why do we read? I mean, if you're like me, you read that and you say, Yeah, that's weird. Let's keep reading. Like I don't I don't really know what to do with that. And if somebody came up to me and said, I don't believe the Bible because Lot's counted righteous, and if you read about Lot, he's not a righteous guy. Yeah, I don't know what to do with that. What else can we talk about? Like, like it's, there's some difficulty there and and it's, it's difficult to know what to do with this because he's presented as a righteous guy, but what we know about him doesn't seem very righteous. But what I want us to see in kind of wrapping this up this morning is that Lot isn't as different from Abraham as we want to believe that he is. They're both righteous. And the behavior that we want to hold against Lot isn't that different than what Abraham's engaged in. Look at it. Abraham versus Lot. Is anyone really righteous? Both experience difficulty in leaving their homes, right? Lot lingers. They have to say, get out, get out, get out. No, really, get out. But you remember when we talked back in chapter 12, Abraham left, but he took family with him, which he was told to just leave. He drags his dad and other family with him. And then they settle down in Haran, right? Like it starts in Ur, but then they settle in Haran. And we talked about Haran was a lot like Ur. Zoar was a lot like Sodom. Abraham says, yeah, let's leave Ur. Let's go where God wants us to. Hey, Haran's kind of nice. And it says, Tara settled them there. So he listens to dad and they settle there. Abraham's not the great leader initially either with his family. He's listening to what his family wants to do. They settle in Heron, not much different. Both experienced difficulty in leaving their homes. Both offered loved ones to other men for sexual purposes. Lot says, take my daughters, but they don't. Abraham says, take my wife, Pharaoh, don't kill me. Pharaoh's not in love with his wife, right? Abraham doesn't walk in and say, babe, you've got the best personality ever. And when Pharaoh meets you, he's going to want to have coffee with you and talk with you. You're going to satisfy all the relational needs that Pharaoh has. No, he says, babe, you're stunning. Like you are a an attractive piece of work. And when we walk into Egypt, he is going to want you. He is going to want to take you and he is going to kill me so that he can have you. Abraham does the same thing. He, he offers her up and he is actually gives her and she's gone. And he's sitting in his tent with all of his stuff that Pharaoh gives him. And it's not Abraham that goes beating down the door of Pharaoh to say, I changed my mind. She's not my sister. Well, she is, but she's also my wife. Give her back to me. No, like God has to step in and intervene. And God has to make everybody sick in that household. Both experienced family members that doubted God's communication. Right? We want to say, Lot, you're a a poor father. Your sons-in-law that are about to marry your daughters... Think you're joking when you talk about god what did sarah do in the chapter before god says i'm going to give a child to you sarah and she busts out laughing she thinks he's joking both of them have family members that, that that aren't clinging to the same promises like they are abraham's wife hasn't been led into this deep trust of god that when she hears about god's promise she clings to it immediately no she laughs she says you're joking these sons-in-law think he's joking both have sexual relations with women that are not their wives in order to preserve a future seed, right? The daughters come, and Lot doesn't really know what's happening. Abraham knew what was happening with Hagar, right? And again, that wasn't relationally based either. She says, here, take my, take my maidservant. Y'all, y'all, y'all go have a baby together. Why? So that we can have a seed, so that, the, that, the, that, the, that our, our family name can continue. There's not as big of a difference as we want to claim about these two men. Both of them are guilty of some of the things that that we're holding against Lot. What, What I'm convicted of, again, what we said at the very beginning, is that Lot is not counted righteous, nor is Abraham counted righteous because of the great things that they do. They're counted righteous because of their belief. Now, we know James is very clear that true faith leads to works. It leads to action. But we're not told in James that we have to get to a certain point in our, in our works or in our action that further justifies us. We are declared righteous by the work of Jesus Christ, his perfect life. And that can never be altered or adjusted because Jesus lived and he died and his perfection is sealed for all eternity. Jesus is in a glorified body. He can, he can no longer subject himself to temptation. He has is, he is completely won the victory for us. Our, our, our righteousness is not in doubt. And if we're truly believers, then it leads to works in our life. And what we find in Second Peter and in Genesis 19 is that Lot's faith did produce fruit. It did produce good works. You say, how? He chose Sodom for the lushness of the land, not for the sensual activity associated with it, right? Like, he chose to live there, not because he was attracted to the sin. Now, he tolerates the sin for the benefits of the land, but he doesn't participate. And you could really sum it up. He did not do the sin of Sodom, and he did not approve of the sin of Sodom. Lot believes and acts differently than those in Sodom, right? He shows hospitality to the two visitors. He's not on the outside looking in, demanding that they be given to him so that he can abuse them. He's different than the people in Sodom. He shows hospitality rather than being overcome by sexual cravings. The people seem to have noticed a difference in him. They talk about him being their judge and and being their moral compass. And in 1 Peter, we're told as believers that should be the case. Verse 3 of 1 Peter 4 For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. They're doing that outside the door when they're demanding to have these individuals. He'd raised daughters in a way where they were physically protected from the corruption of Sodom, right? Like, he's got two daughters that live in a sexually perverse city that have never known a man. So, so he, in his, in his mind, is, is, is taking some steps to protect his family from the corruption of Sodom. Now, he doesn't protect them mentally, right? Like, they, they resort to some real debauchery in their thinking in the cave. But these are two individuals that have never known a man. They're not not women that are just running around with the men of Sodom. There's a a difference, a separation in Lot's house. He was grieved over their sin and tormented in his soul. That's what 2 Peter highlights for us. And that's why I believe that he was counted righteous before the cave incident and not in some situation that we don't have record of it says for that righteous man lived among them day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard he was greatly distressed by that sensual conduct he was not okay with it and he even calls them out for it when they're outside his house and then ultimately he believed god would punish the city and left it's not a great list like it's not a A strong list for why we would say this man is righteous. But we're not looking for a list. And praise be to God, we're not looking for a list for ourselves. Because if my salvation is based on the things that I've done, then I will fall far short of his glory. And scripture is very clear about that. Titus chapter 3 verse 5. Or verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. So we ought to look at Lot and say, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense that he can be counted righteous if we're basing it on his good works of righteousness, but we're not. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's the gospel that we're not saved by our righteous good works. We're not. Abraham wasn't. Lot wasn't either. Some application thoughts for us. First of all, are we tortured by the sin of those around us? We, we want to throw a lot into this subcategory. Hey, there's people that have faith, and then there's lot who kind of has faith, and it's still enough to count him righteous. If Peter was writing about us, would he write that we're tortured by the sins of those around us? Or are we far more complacent in our perspective about how we view the sins of those around us and the sins of our culture? Are we raising our children to have the same grieving spirit that we have regarding the sin around us? Even if we are the type of person that would say, yeah, as humbly as possible, if Peter were to write about me, he would write that I am tormented and grieved over the sin that I see. Are we raising our children effectively to see that same grief because Lot seemingly doesn't with his daughters because of what they participate in with the cave? Are we raising our children to have the same grieving spirit we have regarding the sin around us? And then are we content to simply not be like the world? See, when I think about Lot and I think about a guy who lived in a corrupt city but didn't do the things of that city, it sounds a lot like American Christianity. I mean, could any of us who have lived, a lot of us have lived in this area for a while now, can any of us claim more than 10 righteous people because of our influence in this area? Because we live in a pretty corrupt area too. And we could list the gross sins that that are seemingly tolerated in our culture. Sexual perversion, even. Are we just like Lot, though? Are we just content to not, we're not doing those things. Why do we feel like we're any better than Lot? And the application thought I want to leave you with is that rather than questioning God for counting Lot righteous, let us praise him. For many of us are more like Lot than we are Abraham. I feel like that's where I'm at. Um, you know, I, I wanna, I wanna be a man of faith. I wanna be a man that, that would belong in in the hall of faith in Hebrews. Um, I think oftentimes I'm I'm content to be a guy who lives in the world, and I'm just I don't do the things that the world does. But I tolerate it, and I and I enjoy the world that I live in. I just don't do those things. Much like Lot, Lot enjoyed Sodom. He doesn't want to leave it. Seems to have set up a nice life for himself there. He's not doing the things that everybody else is doing. And and he, and he encourages others not to do it when they visit the city. I want to be more than that. And I think we want Lot to be more than that as well. I think rather than questioning God for counting Lot, we need to praise him. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we probably fall more into the Lot category than we do the Abraham category. But in, 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 in closing, I really want us to wrap our minds around the fact that if we can get to the point where we're not offended that Lot is counted righteous, that we don't read that and kind of squirm a little bit. When we get to the point that that's not uncomfortable, I think that's when we've gotten to a point where we really understand that salvation is by grace and not by works. Because like I said, we want to revert back to this old way of thinking and we want to start listing off, well, did Lot do anything to be counted righteous? And that's so contrary to the gospel for us to think that way. So contrary for, to the gospel for us to think that way. So, so what I want you to leave with today, um, if, you don't hear, if you don't hear anything else that I've said, is that I want you to allow the story of Lot to attack that remaining belief system inside of you that would say that good works earns our righteous standing before God. Because it doesn't. If it did, Lot wouldn't be counted righteous. But praise be to God that he is counted righteous because he believed in the God of Abraham. And it produced some work in his life. Maybe not to the level that we would desire to see in, in others. But Peter said he was, he was grieved over the sins of others. He lived in it. He wasn't okay with it. He didn't do it. There was work that was produced. There was good works that flowed out of his true belief. We can praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we, we want to ask that you would continue to, uh, to clean our hearts to remove any false understanding about you. God, I confess that, that the story of Lot is a struggle for me still. Even even after preaching the sermon and being done with the application, it's still a struggle for me. I still want to look at his life and say, if it was up to me, he's not, he's not righteous. God, I pray that you would, you, would, you would clean me of any remaining beliefs inside of me that my standing before you and the, the standing of others before you is based on their, their own efforts of righteousness. God, we, we praise you and thank you this morning that we are all equally righteous before you because of Christ's perfection. God, that is such an important truth for us to understand. It's what the gospel teaches, that we are righteous before you because of Jesus Christ. But Father, help us to, to, to know the teachings of James, that if we're truly believing in you, that belief takes effect in our life. And there's changes that happen in our behavior and our attitudes and our actions. God, we don't want to be an individual who is, who is uh, demonstrating the, the least amount possible when it comes to good works. We want to be people that are zealous for good works. We want to be people that live in a city of wickedness and have a great impact and an effective witness. We want to be people that when we communicate God's promises to our family members, they don't think we're joking and they don't laugh at it. We want to be people that raise our kids to fear you. So God, I pray that we would be reminded constantly that our salvation is based on our faith and trust in your good works and your righteousness. But help us to realize that that true faith works. True faith produces good works. So God, I pray that we would pursue those things in sanctification, that we would pursue letting the Holy Spirit work through us. We thank you for this story. We thank you that you're a just God who brings judgment. We thank you that you're a God of grace and salvation. We're thanking you that you're a God who counts people righteous. Because they believe in you. Give us increased faith in you this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church Podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.savhope.org. Again, that's www.savhope.org.